The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Once to add new skills to your resume, take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording again from the remote Bronx studios at Rider University. This is Health 411. This Health 411 program is presented by the Rebels Institute for New Jersey Politics and the Rider University Health Studies Institute. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand knowledge and perspective and help give you things to think about and talk about. Today, Isaac and I, um, Isaac is our producer, we are going to have a conversation um, about something that has sort of tangentially been in the news, but it inspired me to look more into it. We're going to talk about panic attacks. And Isaac, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but one of the reasons I thought talking about panic attacks would be interesting, there are two things that popped up on my radar. One of them what occur? it's a, an event that happened in real life that's been in the news that happened in a mall, not near Lawrenceville, but a, a mall a little bit in more northern New Jersey in a Victoria's Secret. Do you, do, you real, do you know what I'm talking about? I do briefly. I do remember you talking. You might have to refresh my mind, though. Okay. So what happened in a mall up in North Jersey is there's a Victoria's Secret store, and the fact that what store it is is pretty irrelevant. But there was a... Um, it was it was one of these Karen episodes where some white middle-aged woman unloaded on a black woman in the store. The difference was this woman had a cell phone and recorded the episode. Yes, and, now I do know you remember. And you what you're you talking might about. remember yeah. some of the some of the, the videos that were posted on Twitter were taken down, but there are static photos out there of this woman, the white woman, laying on the floor screaming when she realized that she was being recorded, uh, how, how like her attitude changed. But it was one of these Karen episodes. And this woman claims that a reason for her outburst is she was having a quote unquote panic attack. The set, and like that, that is sort of interesting, but that is, was not worthy of Health 411. When, when we were thinking about what we were gonna talk about um, on this show, I was sort of looking through news articles and um, there's an article in Forbes magazine or the, the online version of Forbes magazine um, about panic attacks. And it's, you know, it's titled, what is a panic attack? And it sort of talked a little bit about it and we're gonna do more of that. Um, but I figured, and, it, and reading it in Forbes magazine, um, and that's the article I sent to you, Isaac, and hopefully you had some time to look at it, mm -hmm. made me think is like, oh my God, is there something about this behavior called a panic attack that would explain 
why this woman unloaded another person in a store in a mall for, by all accounts, really no reason. Right. Make sense, make sense to you? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so that's sort of what I want to talk about today. And let's put it in the context of um, what's happening in the brain and behavior when somebody has, or what this woman was claiming, was a panic attack. Now, I have absolutely no knowledge if this woman really was having a panic attack or was just something, another thing that popped out of her mouth to try to explain this outrageous behavior or, or what was going on. So, but we're gonna talk a little bit about um, what, what I was able to discern um, about this sort of phenomena, about panic attacks and panic disorders. In order for us to do that, let's put the physiology and behavior of these things in a little bit of context. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna ask you, um, Isaac, is, and, and these things are related when it gets to be bad, they're categorized under anxiety disorders or anxiety issues. Um, which come from some of the same circuits in terms of physiology that are activated when people have fear responses. So I want to ask you, is fear a good thing? Is fear a bad thing? Like, what, what do you think about fear? Fear. Mm, what do I think about it? What do you know about fear? Heard... I, know, I know fear, fear, fear is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a, uh, a good thing because fear can lead to a lot of doubt but <laughs> that's that's one thing i know it's like fear and doubt are kind of in the same category there okay so, um, so when i talk about fear I'm, we're, we're going to talk about what you're thinking about because that's related to understanding panic attacks um which can lead to panic disorder but the thing that we're going to address to in terms of physiology is something called like a fear response and mm -hmm. i would say fear responses are related to the circuitry is very, very similar to stress and stress responses. Um, so let me rephrase the question to you. Is stress bad or is stress good? A stress response. Stress bad or stress is good. I'm setting you up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think about it. Carp is setting me up. I got to be careful what I say. <laughs> right. I, <guess> <laughs> I, I want to say, I want to say stress. there's good stress and bad stress. Okay. So it's in the middle. So I want to say <laughs> yes or no. You're being very diplomatic. So a stress response is something that all animals can do. If a stress response, and we're talking about the physiology of a stress response, if stress responses were bad, right, these are something that some animal wouldn't be able to do. And the, 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 quite the opposite is true. The ability to change your physiology and change your behavior in response to a potential, a real or perceived threat to your psychobiological integrity is the fancy word for it. But the ability to change your physiology and behavior in the face of some external challenge is a good thing, right? When you have a stress response, let's, let's use an example of being you know, chased by a, a bear, right? Mm -hmm. That If you see a bear, there's only one of three things that can happen to you. Number one, you see the bear and it comes at you and the bear kills you then it right. really doesn't matter what your body's doing because you're dead. Number two is you see the bear, it comes at you and you run away. In order for you to get away from the bear that's chasing you, you need to increase your heart rate, increase blood pressure, um, 
increase, increase your cognitive arousal, you need to suppress hunger, you know, a whole bunch of responses that you need to get away from the bear. The third possibility, the thing that can happen is the bear gets you, injures you, but you get away. Okay? Mm -hmm. In that case, you need something, some sort of mod, you need some immune activation, immunomodulation, you need something going on that will allow you to heal, given the fact that your, your physiology has been damaged by the bear attack. Those are only, really only the three options that can happen to you. Right. The constellation of things that happen to you if you die don't really matter. But if you are chased by the bear or you're injured by the bear, the, all the physiological things that are going on, which are in a sense directed by your brain and nervous system, which is going to see the bear, smell the bear, hopefully not touch the bear, but whatever it is, your nervous system is going to register all these things. The, 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 all the hormones that are secreted, the neurotransmitters are secreted, the, you know, the faster beating of your heart, the blood flow going to your muscles, the, a lot of glucose being pumped into your blood so your muscles and other organs your body can use it. All that sort of stuff is part of the stress response or the, the fear response that I was getting at. And so it's really not correct to look at stress as a bad thing in physiology because the, at least the stress response that will allow you, using our analogy, to get away from the bear. Now, sometimes stress can take on a, a, a bad name in our society. Because if you are going to be attacked by this bear, let's say, um, Isaac, how long does it take for your body to figure out which one of those three things is going to happen to it? Whether you're going to be killed, get away, or injured and survive? Probably not long enough. Uh, not, <laughs> not fast enough because, I mean, like the initial shock factor oh, there's a bear in front of me. Yeah. Right, but you're really <laughs> yeah. talking minutes. On the maybe, long... maybe, maybe two minutes? Yeah, a couple minutes. Yeah. A couple minutes, let's say, even if the bear chases you, you're looking at you know, 20 minutes, half hour, something like that, right? Before you get away and, and, and you're safe. The reason stress responses, to make a long story short, have gotten sort of a bad name in in the vernacular in common society is because the stresses that humans undergo in our society now are not like being attacked by the bear. But what are some of the things that cause stress to people um, nowadays in society? You mentioned one when we were talking before we started recording. Money matters, right? right. Financial commitments, loans, student loans, whatever it's going to be. Those things don't go away, right? Mm -hmm. They're gonna be there for a long time. Other things that are stressors are bad jobs, bad relationships, um, all those sort of things, money problems, legal problems. These are long-term stressors. So you have a physiology that's designed to be activated on the relatively short term. And then in modern society, we have these things that activate them for the relatively long term. And the elevated blood glucose, which is great if you're running away, can cause steroid diabetes or the increases in heart rate and blood pressure, which you need can cause you know, high blood pressure, hypertension, things like right. that. The suppression of the, of the reproductive system, because you're not gonna stop and copulate you know, while you're running away. That mm -hmm. happens, you know, that we call, we, you know, we call that like psychogenic you know, um, impotence and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, those, are some, those are sort of the reasons why stress and the stress responses have gotten a bad name. We are gonna come back and we're gonna connect this to talking about um, 
panic attacks and panic disorder in just a few minutes after we take um, uh, after we hear some underwriting announcements, you're listening to Health 411 on 1077thebronc and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, recording from the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back to Health 411. Isaac and I are having a conversation um, about the physiology of stress responses, and we're going to connect it to some recent things that are out there about putting the idea of panic attacks um, sort of on our radar and things that we're looking at. And um, in the last segment, um, I stressed Isaac a little bit. And so when I was putting him on the spot to answer some questions, his heart rate was going up, his blood pressure was going up. You know, on the radio, you can't see him, but I could, you know, his, you know, his pupils were dilated. All a these, little bit. <laughs> all these things were happening. These are part of a stress response. This is what, this is the normal part of physiology. This is why you see students who are often going to give um, oral presentations in their classes. In the old days, when we met face-to-face, some students would go to the front of the room to do their oral presentation and bring a bottle of water with them. Why are they doing that? They're not doing it, Isaac, because they're going to get thirsty in the middle of their, let's say, 20-minute presentation to the class of 20 people. Why right. are they doing it? Uh, they calm their stress levels down. Well, in a sense. Yeah. Not necessarily, well, it, it, does, it does sort of generate some parasympathetic simulation. But what happens is, is when you're having these normal physiological uh, stress responses, one of the things that happens is saliva production goes down. And if you are talking and you are not producing saliva, it's very, very hard to talk, right? So that's very true. Are, people are afraid of dry mouth, so they'll bring the water with them to the front of the. I'm assuming it's water and not vodka or whatever that they're going to drink. Yeah, right, <laughs> um, right, and and part of that is when you do drink, you are stimulating saliva production, and that's part of sort of the the yin versus the yang, the opposing, not the sympathetic response, but the parasympathetic response that would slow down heart rate, slow down um, lower blood pressure, produce more saliva, and you know, sort of get the GI tract going again. So the opposite things that are happening during a normal stress response. And those circuits that are activated in a normal physiological stress response, and we're gonna talk a little bit about them, in a sense, are the same sort of, are the same um, hormonal, neuroendocrine, sympathetic, um, cognitive arousal things that happen in a panic attack. Mm-hmm. However, the difference is, is a panic attack is not by definition based on a real threat. What's happening in people who have a panic attack, and let's just, you know, um, let's just put it out there. Panic attacks are not that uncommon. Um, I've seen estimates from around five to about a third of adults in, in, in a given year um, may have sort of a, a panic attack. Um, they tend to happen more so in people in their 20s and their 30s, more women than males. Um, but they can 
they're sometimes comorbid with other things, but what they are, are an activation of these circuits that we're talking about, the activation of the hypothalamal pituitary adrenal axis. That's the axis that generates um, cortisol. You have activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is going to incre increase heart rate and blood pressure. You have a alteration in blood glucose levels, which is gonna provide energy to things. You're gonna have sweating, shaking, um, um, uh, changes in respiratory rate. And there's a whole bunch of symptoms that are part of a panic attack that, you know, the, you know um, um, I'll, I'll list, I'm looking at a list, I'll just tell you, you know, um, dizziness, uh, hot flashes, nausea or upset stomach, numbness, heart palpitation, shortness of breath, sweating, shaking, fear of dying, fear of going crazy, fear of your, like you're outside yourselves. You have to have at least four of those sort of symptoms to actually have a panic attack. The good right. news is a real panic attack lasts 10 or 15 minutes and goes away. But what happens is during a panic attack is that people become like incredibly afraid and it's generating a fight or flight response in the absence of an external threat. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. key. A panic attack happens to people when they're not being chased by that bear, to go back to our analogy. Right. Something happens that activates these normal circuits that we all have. Now, in this case, you need your brain and your nervous system to register. And there are certain parts of the brain and nervous system that we'll talk about that, that registers, that activates um, you know, the circuits that are ultimately to turn on the hypothalamus, you know, activate the pituitary that are called, you know, um, the, the adrenal glands to secrete things, both um, uh, catecholamines and steroid hormones, um, which can be immunomodulatory. There's feedback. Um, and so in a sense, that's sort of the, the without going into the details, of like, so the activation of a panic attack, it's this threat response, the physiology in the absence of there actually being a threat. Have I done an okay job of sort of explaining that? Yeah, you've done a perfect job. And I, I started, I'm started thinking about some of my friends who I've seen actually had a panic attack now. Oh, really? And, did, did, yeah. what, what, what did you observe? They do things that are out of normal. <laughs> that are not exactly like normal things to do when coping when you have a panic attack. Like for instance, uh, uh, my host sister slash who I call my sister. She's not my sister biologically, but she is my sister. Um, she is my sister based off you know just our nature of a relationship. She had a panic attack maybe about three days ago. Oh wow! And um and she and with her panic attack, like she kind of texted me a picture calmly, not with like in all caps, but she dyed her hair from which was a cherry. She, she's naturally cherry red hair, and she dyed it completely black, like within a matter of hours, because she was having a panic attack at, uh, over a work phone call over a work meeting. And I'm like, why is your hair all dyed black? She said, I've been having, I had a panic attack today. And I just said, and her, I guess, instinctively, she just said, let me just change my hair. Okay. So, so what do you think, what do you think was going on? So you're getting away from some of the physiology kind of stuff, but what do you think was going on with her when she decided to do something that in a sense might alleviate some of the symptoms of her panic? 
I think for her that um, she knowing her, she was probably put on the spot, <laughs> um, put on the spot about a question and she was not prepared for. And that was just kind of a natural response where she would just shut. And usually, like, I remember in person, she would just shut down and kind of okay, like, so yeah. When people do have panic attacks, I wanted to get to this, but you're bringing up the idea of how to yeah. treat them and how to deal with them, given that they are reasonably common. There's there, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. There are behavioral ways of training to reduce the symptoms of a panic attack. There are, are pharmacotherapy or drug manipulations that we'll talk about, the best ones sort of combine them. There is actually a market now of companies that are developing what are what's called digital therapeutics They're using apps that mm -hmm. teach people some of the same things, but it's sort of what you're doing by all, you know, with the behavioral therapy and talk therapy and these apps, um, and in a set, set, with the drugs a little bit, you are teaching people to what's sometimes called grounding and regulations, to talk to themselves, give them a sense of control of themselves, breathing exercises, thought exercises in the context of cognitive behavioral therapy to mm -hmm. sort of talk yourself down, to give yourself some control of the environment that you see yourself in and your own physiology. And so right. one could argue with your, with your sister, by doing something like dyeing her hair, she was giving herself some control right. over, over her environment and her own body. That she might have felt like as she was, you know, having fears of going crazy, having chest pain, dizziness, flashes, chills, nausea, um, you know, shortness of breath, all the things that are part of the normal physiology that would normally help you run away from that bear by developing some sort of control of your, your body and your environment, you are, you know, sort of coming off the um, sort of the fear. Right. In that, right. Little bit of, in that little bit of time. So, you know, she might have naturally congregated to what cognitive behavioral therapy or digital therapeutics are actually doing. And um, so good for her. I didn't know that 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 you had that so recently to you. Um, I have experienced these things myself. And um, um, I remember years ago having one um, when I was actually at Ryder. Um, and, uh, I was lucky enough to know somebody who had some benzodiazepines who was going to give me one. And then I sat and talked to that person for a while. Right. And it, it calmed down, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, I was fine. Went back to whatever I was doing and on with that. So panic attacks are real things. They're not dangerous, um, unless they happen, happen enough to become disruptive. So you can't do things. They don't necessarily mean panic disorder. It's just a panic attack. And I want to talk about some of the physiology, some of the signals. How does your brain generate a fear response in the absence of fear? Um, after we come back, after some um, listening to some underwriting announcements. So we'll do that on Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx. 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Welcome back to Health 411 on the remote Bronx studios. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I'm here with Isaac Harris, and we are having a conversation about panic attacks, about some of the triggers and some of the things that are happening. And Isaac, you wanted to add something to our, our conversation as we, as we keep moving ahead. Right, yes. And the thing I wanted to add was just talking about knowing how who she is. And if she does listen to this, uh, this is your sister. My sister. Yeah, this is my sister. I'm like, I still love you. This is just something that we're talking about and something that I know that you're somewhat open about with this is that, uh, you know, sometimes I know you kind of freeze up and you kind of go um, lightheaded with it. And some of the, some of the symptoms like physiology was that she'll get lightheaded or she'll start, you know, feeling a little dizzy when it, when it's in an uncomfortable space, um, when she starts having a panic attack and then those triggers of those, of those physiology behaviors would lead to those other behaviors, such as like dying hair to try to regain control of the situation um, for her. It would be interesting for you to talk to her about um, what some of her triggers might be because different people will have different triggers and you hypothesized that it might have something to do with happened uh, a situation that happened to her at work. Uh, and right. that's a, that, that is a, a typical figure, a, a, a trigger, sorry. Um, other ones have to do with, you know, um, being tired or poor sleep, uh, excess caffeine consumption, um, sometimes withdrawal from drugs or alcohol can cause these things. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can identify your own triggers, then, you know, you can sort of uh, help yourself manage them. Um, and so good. So maybe you'll have something to talk about with her. Um, as, as, as we can, can continue our, our, our conversation. Right. Um, I also want to, but I would, like, as you recognize, I, I was, I guess, cause it's a little bit my, where I'm used to more thinking about it. Um, thinking about the, you know, when, when I say the physiological basis, I'm thinking more about the neurobiology, what's happening in the body. Right. Um, and for, you know, panic attacks, which I said, you know, can be relatively common. Sometimes they can happen to, you know, you know, a large percentage of us any one one time. Um, there's probably a heritability factor, uh, risk factors include not just your, you know, the genes that you in, you you inherit, but long-term exposure to stress. That's the the real stress that we were talking about, the chronic stress, um, uh, being prone to sort of anxiety, um, and you know what I'm gonna call autonomic um, overactivity, over that's activation of the sympathetic nervous system, that's the fight or fight response. Um, but you can also have pharmacologic sensitivity to not just caffeine, but other things like lactate and carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. which can cause panic attacks, which I wanna point that out because um, if I said to you, Isaac, Carbon dioxide, you know, tell me what you know about it or what you think about it. What do you think about, what do you know about carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide is a compound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I, the only thing I would think about is just the basic science terms. I wouldn't think about how it affects us and how it triggers. Well, oh, oh okay. Yeah. Let me take a step, before I move on then, let me take a step back. Yeah. <laughs> because in both people and laboratory animals, there's, there's one of the things that is used to generate uh, panic attacks um, in people or, or an animal model of it um, has to do with carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide 
is what humans give off. You breathe in oxygen. When you exhale, a large portion of that is CO2. CO2 is taken up by plants. CO2 is one of the greenhouse gases. Right. Um, but when you breathe, one of the reasons you breathe whatever your normal respiratory rate is, and then you exercise, like when you play basketball, Isaac, you breathe more, you take deeper breaths, you're bringing in more oxygen. And your nervous system sort of automatically does that because your body is not monitoring blood oxygen levels. Your mm -hmm. body is monitoring blood CO2 levels. And there are areas of your brainstem that are involved with breathing, heart rate, and blood pressure, and all that sort of stuff. And as your blood CO2 levels go up from exercise, because more of the oxygen is being used, um, CO2 levels go up. That's going to change, in a sense, the pH of you know, the, the fluids um, in your body and your, your blood. Your body reacts to that, and it will make you breathe in more oxygen to try to reduce that. What's sort of interesting about that is that the, the chemoreceptors, the sort of monitor pH that are in your brain, especially in your brainstem, um, there's a, a it's, it, it, I remember when this was sort of um, organized and put out in the, in the 1990s, something called the suffocation alarm hypothesis of panic attacks. And the idea is how do you generate a stress response in the absence of a threat? Well, when people think about that, they're usually thinking of an external threat. However, what if the threat is an internal threat? What if the threat to your psychobiological integrity is a increase in the, in the context that we're putting it, an increase in body CO2 levels, mm -hmm. right? What if that is the threat that your nervous system is recognizing and due to that increase in CO2 levels, a stress response is generated that you perceive as a panic attack that activates the hypoflammatory-pituitary-genal axis, that activates the sympathetic nervous system, that causes cognitive arousal, causes increase in heart rate, but all the things that we were sort of talking about. And that just happens to be something called the suffocation alarm hypothesis. Um, it's that some guy in the, in the early 1990s named Klein came up with. That's pretty cool, I think. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Yeah, because you know, as you, you know, as you know, as you know, acidity levels go up, your body responds to it as a threat and makes you run around, do crazy things, increase heart rate and blood pressure, and do all this sort of stuff. Now, where was I going with in terms of the animal models? Well, you can you can generate animal models of panic attacks by having animals breathe high CO2 air, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually do that also with people, right? right. I, think, I think it's something like 35% CO2, but don't quote me on that. If you have people breathe high CO2 like air levels, right? You can generate them, the, the, their cognitive interpretation of the physiology that's happening is very, very similar to those things that are associated with a panic attack. And I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, you know, um, you know, 
what parts of the brain, what's happening? Where are these CO2 monitors? Well, these CO2 monitors are not just in the brainstem involved with breathing. Some of these CO2 monitors in your brain happen to be in the limbic system, which are the connection of you know, nuclei that are involved with the processing and the interpretation of emotions. Primarily, for example, in the, the amygdala, so some of these CO2 sensors tend to be in the amygdala, which is part of the um, limbic system that's involved with your brain's generating um, you know, an interpretation of an event is potentially stressful. Um, and I find that very, very thing interesting, um, especially because it's not just in panic attacks. The same CO2 hypersensitivity idea has been applied to people who have PTSD. Like why do some people are susceptible to PTSD and some people maybe not? It might have to do with the, the emotional content or the CO2 levels at the time that traumatic events are happening. It's been associated with asthma, right? And so if you can't breathe, people with asthma attacks, it's, it's horrible, you know? Um, it doesn't feel good. It feels like a, a panic attack. Um, and what's interesting and whether you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy or some of these digital therapeutics with, with the apps that are out there that actually train you within breathing, um, you know, breathing techniques, giving you things to think about. Um, you can train yourself if you recognize the symptoms coming on or you recognize triggers to breathe deeply, relax, calm down, which is almost meditative or, you know, a lot of you know, like TM or transcendental meditation, other meditative techniques, mm -hmm. the way you get into them to calm yourself down has to do with breathing, right. right? It has to do with relaxation techniques that have to, you know, keep you from feeling threatened by the environment that you are in. And I find that very interesting when people talk about the physiology and triggers for panic attack. Now, there are, this is probably not all panic attacks that are generated by the CO2 hypothesis. There are probably other things, drugs could probably do it, um, <laughs> allergies could probably do it, but it's something to think about, especially when we talk about the world of COVID um, and anxiety and a respiratory illness. I think it's very interesting to think about that some of that might be going on. Um, mm -hmm. So Isaac, let us continue this conversation um, on Health 411 after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077 The This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. One zero seven seven The Bronx, one zero seven seven The Bronx dot com. Isaac and I are recording from the remote Bronx studios, and you're listening to Health Four One One. Isaac, in the break, you mentioned that you had some um, questions or some ideas uh, that you wanted to bring up. Since you mentioned, yeah, I did have some questions, Doctor Carp. Since you mentioned that uh, CO two has has some triggering elements to how, how uh, an animal panic attack works. And and same with with how our environment and how we react to things. 
with COVID, and I know this is unfortunately another COVID question, COVID-related question. Um, with COVID now being a huge factor and there are so many different things going on with different variants coming about and everything. How does, how do you think that affects with CO2, how that affects with uh, panic attacks uh, going forward? Um, well, that, that's, that, that was, that was the thought question. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I don't have an answer for that, but I think it's something to be, to think about. Um, and by analogy, let's say, you know, COVID, the COVID-19 infection that, primarily attacks the lungs, at least in the acute phases, not long haulers, um, causes people who didn't otherwise have breathing issues to have breathing issues. Mm-hmm. You know, some people have actually had to have double lung transplants and things like that because their lungs stopped working. Um, it's not the only infection or the only illness that causes people to have difficulty breathing. Um, asthma, Right or al- you know exercise induced asthma or allergy induced asthma is another thing that makes it really hard for people to breathe. And if you know anybody who's ever had an asthma attack, Myself? it is scary. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's really scary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes. It, it, it's inc- I've I've been there. You know, it's it's incredibly scary. Now, is that a panic attack? No. Is the physiology, the cognitive arousal, all the things that are happening, is it panic? Yes. Uh, absolutely um it's like somebody who is you know swimming and is under the water too long Mm -hmm. right probably a major cause of drowning is not staying calm and panicking Mm -hmm. right and then Mm -hmm. you lose the ability to escape from not being able to breathe what happens in people who have a panic attack is sort of that physiology that sort of you know response in the absence of the threat and i keep bringing up that thing in terms of the panic attack so even though there are triggers right the triggers are not necessarily threatening like a bear would be threatening right Right. and i i want to point that out in the context of how i set up the whole thing about this woman in a store in the mall Mm -hmm. right right unloading on another person there's no bear being attacked here. This is something, you know, a, a, a change in physiology and behavior. Notice none of, if you talk to your sister and nothing on the list that I've ever seen, talk about part of a panic attack is like lashing out and saying nasty things to other people who are around you. Right. You know, and so I just, I, I just want to, I just want to put it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, <laughs> So, so did I sort of get at what? Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you did exactly, exactly the way I thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, is it, was there something else you wanted to bring up too? No, that was the only thing because it's interesting to see how panic attacks just form uh, neuroscience, like in the neuroscience background, thinking of like, okay, what are some of the things that happen? So, because like, it, and it makes me now wonder, and not not necessarily become more cautious, but it makes me now more, I guess, more understanding on what actually goes through the human mind or even into the sense of the animal mind when, when a panic attack does occur. Yeah. And part of it's my background. So when mm-hmm. you use the word like human mind, right, I separate, I, I have this dichotomy, right? I think mm-hmm. of the anatomy and physiology of emotions, right? right? There's, a, there's a big debate in, 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 you know, psychology and neuroscience as well is, 
when you have emotions, there's, there's a physiological response associated with it. Now, do you feel the emotions because all this stuff is happening in your physiology and your brain is monitoring it? Or is your brain creating the emotions and then generating the physiological changes in heart rate, blood pressure, cognitive arousal, all, you know, all those sort of things, or do they happen simultaneously? That's like a, you know, there are debates of, about that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, for example, when you cut an onion and your eyes tear, right? Even though you're crying, you don't always feel sad. Right. Right. So are you, are, are you sad because you're crying? Are you sometimes crying because you're sad? That, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that people sort of debate. Right. But I, I digress a little bit from that. Um, I forgot where I was going. <laughs> it's all good. It happens. It happens. Okay. So let, let, let's go back to, okay. oh yeah, the physiology of it. So there's this physiology stuff that's happening that is sort of the limbic control, right, of emotions. And that's all the, the, the getting the signals outside the brain, even if it's the false suffocation idea, right? You generate these things to try to, you know, change your environment uh, if you, as if you were suffocating, which, by the way, if you ever dream it, is a horrible dream to have and will almost definitely wake you up if you dream that you're suffocating. But there's also this other part of the brain. And this is where I think you mean when you say mind, it's part of the brain that's involved with, um, you know, anticipation. It's the part of the brain. It's like in, in the anatomy of panic attacks, it's the medial prefrontal cortex. It's the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Um, and importantly, it's a part of the brain and sort of in the middle of the brain, it's called the insula. All these are parts of the thinking, the cognitive parts that feed in to what's generally considered the non-cognitive parts of the limbic system, which are the amygdala, hippocampus, um, and some associated structures that are involved involved with sort of the physiology of it. And so when you, and I'm going off a little bit, but when you say mind, I think of the stuff that's happening in the cortical aspects of the brain instead of the subcortical regions that are sort of the, the, the limbic parts that are generated in physiology, um, which, which, which are sort of interesting about it. Um, and that leads into, because you can talk about behavioral therapy, you know, um, you can talk about like the digital therapeutics, training yourself with apps, to, but you can also use drugs to treat, um, you know, panic attacks. And some of the drugs are, you know, s- uh, serotonin reuptake, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Some of the drugs are serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Some of mm-hmm. the drugs are the tricyclic drugs. Uh, some of the drugs are MAO and monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And you might not realize this, Isaac, but the, those kinds of drugs that I just mentioned, those four sort of categories mm-hmm. are exactly the same drugs that are given to people to treat unipolar depression. Really? Absolutely the same ones that are sort of effective in treating. Now, other drugs, like I mentioned the benzodiazepines, like um, Valium and um, things like that are not good at treating unipolar depression, but are effective in you know, sort of calming people down and potential right. panic attacks. Um, so the mechanisms are a little bit different, but what's interesting is it tells us that these are not necessarily, these drugs that work on these neurotransmitter systems mm-hmm. are not necessarily identifying the neurotransmitter systems that are key to causing these kinds of like panic attacks. What they're saying is if you putz with these neurotransmitter systems, you can change what the brain does. 
right? And, and if you change what the brain does, we can stop it from doing from other things that we don't want it to do in, mm -hmm. in, in, in that sort of sense. Um, and that, 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 that is, that could be a whole other show. You know, it's like people, you know, who think that like, oh, de you know, unipolar depression is, a, you know, I have low, I have low brain serotonin levels. That's why I'm depressed. I need to increase my serotonin levels. Well, that makes no sense in the context of you have, you have to take like an SSRI for, you know, somewhere, I don't know, six to eight weeks before you know whether it's going to help you or not. Right. You know, whereas your brain serotonin levels are going up almost as soon as you start taking the drug. Why does it take like another month, two months for behavior to change? Because you're not looking at the effect of serotonin on behavior. You're looking at the effect of what your brain does when serotonin levels are increased for long periods of time. And that's why it's effective in treating depression. Right. But I digress. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean to get off. Get no, you're fine. No, you explained it exactly. You explained it. You explained it the right. And I get and I understand that. Good. Good. Well, yes. I go, so I, and I just took the clock and running out of time. But I do want to I do want to sort of close and get people to think about this. Mm -hmm. I have specifically focused on panic attacks which are these things that are you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes long that happen to a relatively large proportion of our population or the adult population at any given time. Panic disorder is a little bit of a different thing, right? Panic disorder happens, it goes from being a panic attack to being a disorder when it starts to interfere with people's ability to function in their everyday lives. If you start to anticipate panic attacks happening you start to start to change your behavior you start to medicate or you start to do other things that it becomes a um you know impossible for you to function because remember sometimes these things are not um existing by themselves they're comorbid and panic disorder when it people start to affect their ability to function in their lives has a lot of direct and indirect costs in society um, it can lead to long-term public health concerns. It's a disorder, not because it happens once or twice. It's a disorder when it interferes with your ability to function in the world. And I just want to point that right. out. Make sense? Yes, it does. Cool. So we're coming to the end of this program on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Rider University effort to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation between Isaac and myself has given you something to think about, about panic attacks and the physiology of panic attacks. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Ryder University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.